This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You probably remember the 1996 film Matilda, starring Mara Wilson. It's based off the iconic children's book by Roald Dahl, and it's now a Broadway musical. The story follows a six-year-old genius who falls in love with reading. She walks the busy streets by herself to the library to read all day. But her father, a used car salesman played by Danny DeVito, can't stand her book obsession. Dinner time is family time. What is this trash you're reading? It's not trash, Daddy. It's lovely. It's called Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Moby what? This is filth. Trash. That's not mine. It's a library book. Trash. I'm fed up with all this reading. You're a wormwood. You start acting like one. Sit up and look at the TV. But Matilda has superpowers. She uses them and her intellect to liberate herself and her friends from the grasp of Miss Trunchbull, the cruel and domineering school principal. The movie ends with Matilda living an idyllic life with her beloved teacher, Miss Honey. Miss Honey moved back into her father's house. Tea time. Of course, Matilda was a frequent visitor. Did you know that the heart of a mouse beats at the rate of 650 times a minute? Hi. Where'd you learn that? In a book. It so fast, it doesn't sound like it's beating at all. It sounds like it's humming. Children across America who share Matilda's love of the written word might have trouble finding the books that feed their passion for reading. According to the American Library Association, the number of books facing censorship challenges is up 20% for the first eight months of this year compared to 2022. That includes more than 800 books in school districts across 37 states. Author Carl Hyacin knows the landscape all too well. He's an award-winning national columnist for the Miami Herald, and he's written 11 national bestsellers. The list includes a number of children's books. His book Hoot won the Newbery Prize and became a feature film. He's no stranger to his books being challenged, including his latest young adult read, Wrecker. He joins us after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Let's get into the conversation and welcome Carl Hyacin. He joins us from his home in Florida. Carl, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Jen. You've been writing books and columns for for decades now. Over the course of your writing career, several of your books have been banned in school districts, prisons, libraries across the U.S. How do you describe the current climate for authors? 
I think it's uh, it's tougher than it's ever been, and I think a lot of that has to do with the you know political movements and the division in this country. But in Florida, certainly, Governor DeSantis has uh, uh, he cringes at the word ban, but he has enabled local school districts to crack down uh, on their own. With you know, after only one or two complaints, uh, they take the book off the shelf, and you know, it's it, I haven't seen it as prevalent ever as it is this year. Do you think it's a particularly difficult moment for children's authors or, or people who write young adult books? Yes, yes, exactly. And and you know, I always I, I alternate when I'm writing. I do a book for the grown-ups, then I do one for kids, and um, so I, I get to hear both of it. I mean, I've had I've had an, one of the grown-up books banned in the Texas prison system, which was hilarious because it was a book about bass fishing, and I mean, I I found great humor in that, but I don't find any of this funny, especially with the, the breadth of, of literature available now for young readers. It, it was nothing like that when I was growing up. And, and you've got these tremendously talented writers, and you also have, you know, a handful of uh, self-deputized vigilantes that, are, you know, that want to take the books away. Your new book, Wrecker, takes readers to modern-day Key West, Florida. And the 15-year-old protagonist, Wrecker, romanticizes his family's history of shipwreck salvaging, loves exploring on the water. What was the inspiration behind this story? Well, I mean, I grew up in South Florida. I used to go to the Keys quite a bit, and I still do. And Key West is, was, was always a place that I'd wanted to set a novel because it's, it's the literal end of the road. U.S. Highway Number 1 literally ends in Key West at mile marker zero. And I just thought it's a kind of a small island, maybe four miles total. But you, you, all you need is a, a boat or a bicycle to be to have a great childhood growing up there. I mean, uh, and I, I always wondered about what it would be like, and I'd love to sort of set a book, you know, on that premise. And so um, that's what I also. I, it was a great excuse for me to go out in Key West and a bit, you know. Well, there have been a couple of events on your book tour canceled because of complaints about the book's content. What challenges are you facing so far on tour? Well, I mean, these were, I think, three separate events. And when you're on a a tour with a a book for kids, you do a lot of events at at schools and uh, public schools and private schools. So these were public school events. One was in North Carolina, one was in Georgia, and I think one was in Virginia, and they don't always have to give you the reason, but it's clear that a lot of the school boards in some communities have been intimidated by these the people who show up, some of whom are parents and some of who are not, but usually just a handful or less, and I think that's what's been happening. In the case of my book, I mean, I had to, I, I shouldn't have laughed, but when they told me one of them was a problem because the main character wrecker in the book, and he's a young kid, and he's worried about his mother. This takes place during sort of the a little past the midpoint of the pandemic. So he's worried about his mom and his stepdad, neither of whom have been, you know, vaccinated or, or uh, wear masks. And the, that the, the COVID ravaged the keys. Um, uh, and a, a lot of people ended up in, on ventilators in Miami hospitals. And so it was a very real thing that was going on there. It's natural for uh, for someone to be concerned about their mom and their stepdad. And and there were a couple of discussions about when, you know, when are you going to get vaccinated? I'm worried about you. And his stepdad eventually ends up in an ICU unit in, in Miami, which happened, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so that was one objection that they, 
they didn't they thought the pro vaccine message would offend <laughs> would offend people would offend would offend children and uh and the other ones, I, I'm not clear, but it was sort of along similar lines. I mean, Jen, they can make up any excuse they want. I mean, there's a part of this book that it, the book takes place in 2021, but there's a, uh, a generational connection to a terrible event that took place in 1921 in Key West where a man was hanged by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and that could also be at the root of some of the objections because as, as you, at least in Florida, uh, we have a governor and a legislature that really uh, wants to limit uh, the way black history is taught. And you're talking there uh, about Manuel Cabeza. Tell us more about that story. Well, I had heard of this story. It, it's shocking. He, um, the, the Klan was very strong in Key West, which I didn't know, in the early 20s. Uh, they, they, the whole power structure was Klansmen, the sheriff, the police chief. The, uh, you know, several judges, the tax collector was even a Klansman. And uh, Manuel Cabeza had, was a World War I veteran. He returned to Key West and he, uh, he was living with a woman of mixed race. And they took him out. One night they, they dragged him from his apartment. They took him out of town and they tarred and feathered him and beat him and broke several bones and gave him an ultimatum. He either, going, either the woman would have to leave or he would have to leave. Well, he became enraged, and even though he was badly hurt, the next day he went out on the street and he recognized had recognized one of the Klansmen. It was a small town, and and he shot he shot one of the Klansmen that had beaten him up and and tarred and feathered him, and he was taken into custody. And the Marines were called in to surround the jail because the Klansmen said they were going to kill him. And at at, no, at midnight, the sheriff sent all the Marines and all the deputies home, and the Klansmen grabbed him and shot him, beat him up, and tied him to the bumper of a car and dragged him around the streets of Key West and then ultimately hung him. It's almost, it's almost surreal to think of that in the context of the way Key West is today mm-hmm. and the way it's been since my whole lifetime. To even th- imagine that something, it is one of the most tolerant, uh, free-spirited, uh, non-judgmental places you'll, you'll ever find. So it was, it was, it was for me a, an eye-opener that that had happened. And one of the characters has generational connection to that event. And, and you know, I suspect that, uh, you know, there, there'll be a few school districts in Florida that will uh, find that as a reason not to, uh, not to carry the book. I, I don't know that for a fact, but I'd be willing to bet on it. Carl, roughly 300 titles were taken out of Florida schools last year alone, and several of those books cover important parts of the state's history, even the difficult parts. What responsibility, if any, do you feel to write about these chapters of the state's history? Well, I mean, I'd started this, started working on this book before this n- new wave of uh, uh, book banning or the purge is more what I would call it. So, and I went in there knowing, I mean, I, I, I knew what I was going to put in the book and, I, and I, I knew what the climate, that the climate had changed politically, uh, not at the grassroots level, not with the kids who read and not with the librarians, but the school boards, because they're elected, um, were getting, you know, terrorized basically. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I mean, the responsibility is to, <clears throat> to write what, you know, to write what's true and honest and, and not back down and, and, and stand up when this sort of thing happens. What I, the, Jen, one of the sad things, when, and this just hasn't happened to me, it's happened to a lot of writers, but when you have events, um, you know, and you're on a tour, you're going to independent, usually independent bookstores or even Barnes and Noble stores and it's a big deal for them to have an author in, and they sell a lot of books. 
and, and, and they get punished on the bottom line when, when these events are canceled. I mean, you know, I just get on a plane, go to the next city, but it's a big part of their budget, and it's a big deal for them to have authors come. I felt bad for them. I feel bad for the kids. Let's take a pause here. Coming up, we meet a 16-year-old Floridian who started her own band book club. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. It's Banned Book Week, and schools, libraries, and bookstores are hosting live events and conversations. The most challenged books last year include The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. That's according to the American Library Association. Let's bring two new people into the conversation. They're both directly affected by book bans. Iris Mogul is a junior at the Academy for Advanced Academics. That's a dual enrollment high school and community college program in Miami, Florida. She started a banned book club in Miami this fall where participants will read and discuss books banned in Florida schools. Iris, it's so great to have you on the program. Yeah, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. And joining me in studio is Diane Kresh. She's the director of libraries in Arlington, Virginia. She spent her entire career working in libraries, including 31 years at the Library of Congress. Diane, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Iris, what inspired you to start a book club focused on reading banned books? Well, I had been wanting to start a book club for a while, Um, and this past summer I had been hearing a lot about book bans and how this year there were more book book bans than ever before, and I thought that starting a book club where we only read banned books, um, like, hit two birds with one stone. One, we could talk about thought-provoking books, and two, we, it's an act of resistance, and that's important. To be clear, is your club at all affiliated with the school you attend? No, it's not. We meet at Books and Books, um, an independent bookstore in Miami. Now, you just finished reading the first selection for your book club. That's Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. The book is required reading for AP African American History, and it's considered by many literary historians to be an African American feminist classic. But it is banned in some Florida schools and in other school districts across the country for sexual content. What were some of the key themes that came out of the group conversation about the book? Well, we talked a lot about how, although it's, frightening. It wasn't surprising that the book was banned because a major theme is the protagonist, Janie. She's a strong black woman and she's kind of going through this journey of self-realization 
which in turn makes her stronger. And I think, um, you know, like the point is to silence um, inspiring characters like that. And while schools are often at the forefront of the book ban debate, public libraries are also experiencing a lot of pressures. Dave in Arkansas has this message about their importance. Libraries need to be a place where information is available and free to anyone who needs to find it. Going to the library is voluntary. Checking out a book from the library is voluntary. A small minority of people should not control what the public has available to them. Diane, what role do libraries and librarians play in our society and in our communities? Well, as Dave mentioned, they are places where people can confront and experience a lot of different ideas, points of view, diversity, both in how they're leading their lives in their community, but as well as exposing them to ideas and authors and subjects that they might not otherwise be aware of, which in turn builds tolerance and acceptance and understanding. So libraries have a huge role in promoting active participation in a democracy. One of our founding fathers created the first library, Benjamin Franklin. So it's been part of our natural national culture and history from the start. So libraries have an important role. This is not the first wave of book banning. Any one of us is aware that there have been many, many efforts over the many decades now. I I will have been in the profession next year 50 years. Uh, I have never seen anything quite like this. The statistics are alarming, and yet it's an opportunity for librarians to stand up and say, we're here and we're not going anywhere. 50 years working in libraries. What is the core tenet you adhere to as a librarian, the the one thing that's the bedrock of, of how you do your work? Free and unfettered access to information, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, a newspaper, a magazine, getting a referral to a government service if you uh, have a health issue or other kind of issue that prevents you or is a barrier to you leading your life. So that's the fundamental, that's the start. And yes, we can talk about the First Amendment, which is certainly important, the Freedom to Read statement, which a number of librarians created in 1953 in response to McCarthyism. Those words are still relevant today. And it's, it's again, all about the information and what you need to lead your life. At the same time, libraries exist as part of communities. They're, they're embedded in communities. And there are times when concerned community members will come and say, we have, we have a concern about this book. There's a process in place yes. where books can be removed from the shelf. What does that process look like? Every library has some kind of process for reconsidering a book that's in its collections. We also have collections policies, which stipulate very clearly the uh, obligation and responsibility of the libraries to build the community collection. It's first and foremost a reflection of the community, the demographics, the interests. We get between three and 400 requests per month from people in the community who say, I don't see this book in your catalog. Can you, can you get it? And we'll do the research, we'll look at how it's been reviewed, and we'll determine whether it meets our selection criteria. So collection cr- criteria first, professionally trained people, librarians, master's degrees, and secondly, having a reconsideration process in place. 
So with all that being said, how are you as a librarian and the libraries you oversee being affected in this current political uh, climate? Our goal is to keep the issue alive and to talk about it, to invite conversation with community members, to invite conversations with parents. The county board of Arlington County issued a resolution just last week declaring Arlington Public Library's book sanctuaries. So it it means standing up. Uh, I feel that in my situation, I'm in a position where I do have broad support from the government and the county board. And because I can stand up, I stand up for those who are in communities where they can't. Back in May, a poll conducted by the Progressive Political Action Committee, it's called Civics, found 42% of Floridians support removing books mentioning gay and transgender people and LGBT plus history from public school libraries. 48% are opposed. So, Iris, what do you say to people who support book bans in your state? Well... My personal belief is that I think anything can be taught with context. Um, But I think, like everyone else is saying, um, a decision not to read a book is a personal decision. And it should not be possible for one person's personal decision to affect everyone else. Like I know a lot of kids who the only place, whether it's because of limited resources or time, the only place they can read or get access to books is school or public libraries, and they should have the option to read. Iris, I'm curious how you would describe your relationship to books and reading. What what do books do for you in your life? Um, I think, depending on the book, um, either books can be something I can relate to, to characters, or they can be something that I totally can't relate to and that gives me a new perspective something that I wouldn't have if I hadn't read the book um it's also like the reason I started reading is because I took a lot of public transportation and I like I wanted something to fill fill my time instead of just scrolling through my phone so I just like picked up a book and yeah Hmm. That echoes this email we got from Rebecca, who says, I wonder how many parents who are asking for books to be banned are paying as close attention to the content that their children are accessing on their phones and computers. We're going to head to a quick break here. Still to come, we talk about book sanctuaries and we hear more from you. Stay with us. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change, the many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present, and how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. 
You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to the conversation with these messages we got from some of you. I completely agree with the right of parents to some control over their children's reading matter. If they think they can ban it all, they're utterly stupid. Banning books is something that an authoritarian regime does. I say, as a retired teacher, mother, and grandmother, I'm completely opposed to banning books. People can follow their children around in the library or the bookstore and make sure they're only buying the right stuff. It is not something that should happen in a functioning democracy, especially one that prides itself on freedom of speech. Thanks to Lonnie in Oklahoma and Richard in Alabama. Last week, Diane, as you mentioned, Arlington County commissioners codified their stance on book bans. They filed the following resolution, which states, quote, The Arlington County Board declares Arlington County libraries as book sanctuaries committed to protecting banned and challenged books and the right of the residents of Arlington to read the books they choose without fear of suppression, end quote. What does it mean, functionally, to be a book sanctuary? It means that we continue talking about the issue of why banning is bad for our communities across the country, how they limit participation, how they limit the uh, ability of the majority to participate actively. So it's it's a movement that was begun by Chicago Public Library, so I want to give them full credit. Uh, there are more than 3,000 libraries in the United States who have signed on. It means actively protecting the freedom to read by having banned books in the library, by inviting those authors to have conversations with the community, and also by sharing information and educating people about the dangers of book banning. There are many historical examples. There are many contemporary examples. So not shying away from it is is probably the best thing that people can do. And and not just librarians. I mean, we each of us have a responsibility to take a stand against the band. And I, I think it's through that collective effort that we can uh, certainly limit its influence. Does that mean there are no circumstances under which a book would be removed from the shelf? We, we talked a little earlier about uh, the process community members can go through to, to say, we don't think this book should be part of our community collection. Generally, the the most obvious way would be if the material was outdated and there are better resources available. Again, the collection policies for any library are going to guide what that library uh, acquires and maintains. Some books, uh, someone was asking me not too long ago about the anarchist cookbook. Uh, it had its day. It probably is still held by a couple of libraries, but most of that information is now available on the internet, so there's not really a reason for a library to to have it. But uh, my library has Mein Kampf. My library has Das Kapital. Those are uh, ideas and principles and philosophies that I might not personally agree with and members of the community may not, but they are there as part of the historical context so that people can learn and understand the world we live in. How are you supporting libraries in Arlington County where this is 
perhaps more of a hot-button issue than it is in, in others. The library system is a system of eight libraries. So all of the libraries report to me as the director, and all are governed by the selection policies, as well as any uh, guardrails we might uh, put in place to protect the rights of citizens to read whatever, whenever, and however. So there really isn't a particular library. Some communities have many, many libraries. Fairfax for uh, County of Virginia, for example, is about three or four times the size of ours. So that may be more of an issue in other municipalities, not mine. Iris, have you or your classmates faced any, any difficulties finding some of these books you want to read, either in public libraries or at your schools? Well, fortunately, um, I have books and books, so I can get my books from there. But just in general, it's pretty obvious in the classroom that teachers are kind of tiptoeing around subjects and, like, putting in efforts to be impartial. Um, And it honestly feels like avoidance, like, yeah. As a student, how how does that make you feel? I'm thinking back to some of the discussions I had in high school with some of my favorite teachers, and uh, they were they were in, they informed the rest of my life in so many ways. What is that experience for you like as a student? It's extremely frustrating. Like I, I mean, I love to learn, and I want to be able to talk about like thoughts and ideas in a safe setting, like a classroom. Um, but thankfully, I have, um, like, like this, this book club is kind of a way to do that, outs- like, outside of the classroom. I understand part of the inspiration for the band book club that you've started was Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. Tell me more. Well, so my English teacher, and I'm, I'm hesitant to give details just because, unfortunately, I don't want to get my, trub- my teacher in trouble, which is, like, disturbing in its, o- in its own way. But um, I, like, on the syllabus, there was kind of a tentative Song of Solomon that we were supposed to read for AP Literature. Um, but my teacher was, like like, unsure about how the year would go, and if we'd still be able to read it. Diane, Band Book Week includes events and speakers at schools and libraries and bookstores. What type of partnerships are you forming to bring more awareness to the issue of of book bans? We talk a lot with schools, and I realize they're on another set of front lines uh, on this issue. We also have a very active Friends of the Library in Arlington County. I'm sure most libraries across the nation have friends groups. They are terrific partners. And just, again, being aware of what's going on. So the the idea is not to come up with the best slogan or the best t-shirt, but just keep a very serious issue in the, in the public commons. And we've done a series of events over the years. Two weeks ago, we hosted Art Spiegelman, author of Mouse, whose book was banned by McMinn County in Tennessee uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, applauding Iris's efforts in Florida in response to that action taken by McMinn in Tennessee, students at a local high school in Arlington County went out and purchased many, many, many copies of Mouse and gave them away in some of our public parks. When you talk to educators in Virginia, what are they telling you about 
how this environment, how this climate affects how they feel about teaching. It's an extremely fraught environment. What Carl was describing a minute ago, I've watched a number of these school board hearings. I've listened to many, many news stories about what's happening in libraries. And it's it's frightening. Some of the rhetoric is scary. Some of the complaints are from people who are either not even members of that community. They haven't read the books. So that's step one. Read the book. Uh, one of your commenters online said she read everything her children were going to read, and then they read banned books together. Perfect. And if you are stuck with trying to find the right age-appropriate material for your child, talk to the librarian. We are experts in that. Iris, what other banned books are you excited to read with your group? Well, this month we're reading Go Tell It on the Mountain, which I'm super excited to read. I love James Baldwin. Um, and I mean, there are a number of, of books that are unfortunately any Toni Morrison book we can read. Um, yeah. Uh, Carl, I'm curious to hear from you as someone who's written seven young adult books. Uh, I imagine high schoolers are probably reading some of your adult books too. How does it feel to hear from someone like Iris who loves reading and continues to seek out books that are facing censorship? Well, it's, it just gives all of us hope. I mean, not just writers, but it should give parents hope, too. Here, here's the thing, and this goes back to, you know, when I was young, and I remember reading Catcher in the Rye, and it was still controversial back then. But if, 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 a, if a young person wants to read a book, they're going to find the book. They will get their hands on the book. I mean, moving it to a different part of the library or moving it from middle school to high school or putting it way up high on a shelf... They're going to, if they hear about a book that interests them, they're going to get hold of it. So why not be involved in that process as, you, as the parent? Uh, these, a lot of what I'm seeing in the school board meetings, and Diane referred to, is, is fear. That any, it's just interesting how many of the books banned have to do with uh, racial conflict or have to do with um, gender issues. Um, these are the things that, that, that terrify the sort of the puritanical... Uh, and in my view, hypocritical element that just shows up to shut everything down. Um, the, the fear just coincidentally always comes back to those kinds of issues after all these years and all the progress that has been made, that society has made. It just shows you there's a lot further to go. But but I, when I hear about uh, Iris's group, I think is the coolest thing, and I, I hope it catches on all over the country. That's Carl Hyacin. He's an author and award-winning national columnist for the Miami Herald. He's written 11 national bestsellers and several award-winning young adult books. His latest, called Wrecker, is available now. Also with us, Diane Kresh. She's the director of Arlington Libraries and Iris Mogul, a junior at the Academy for Advanced Academics. Her band book club meets at Books and Books in Miami once a month. Diane, Carl, Iris, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for read. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. 
That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. NPR. 